You're listening to Autumn on the Air, the weekly podcast that brings you conversations about the impact of research commercialization and the people who make it happen. Join us for interviews with patent and licensing professionals, innovators, entrepreneurs, and tech transfer leaders on the issues and trends that matter most. Keep listening for an inside track on the people, IP policies, and politics changing our world. Welcome to Autumn on the Air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller. The WTO Doha Declaration on TRIPS Agreement and Public Health, adopted by the WTO members in 2001, aided in framing the intellectual property systems health policy. It emphasized the importance of the WTO Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, also known as the TRIPS Agreement, as part of broader national and international action to address public health issues affecting development and least developed countries. Internationally, the World Trade Organization will have to reach a decision by December 17th on whether to extend the current TRIPS waiver on COVID-19 vaccines to cover therapeutics and diagnostics as well. An extension of the TRIPS waiver will stifle innovation in all industries that rely heavily on research because it will convey the idea that IP protections for their discoveries can be removed at any time. Today, Patrick Kilbroy joins us on the air to talk about what this expansion would mean for innovation and the precedent it would set. Patrick Kilbride is a senior vice president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Innovation Policy Center. He manages a team of country and regional specialists to supervise the country's multilateral and worldwide activities supporting the preservation and enforcement of intellectual property rights. Welcome, Patrick. I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you, Lisa. Great to be with you. I'm a huge fan. Great to have you here. And there's so much going on right now with respect to uh, intellectual property, TRIPS waiver, um, March and rights that I wanted to talk with you today about uh, the TRIPS waiver. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you for some of our listeners who may not be overly familiar, can you explain a little bit about how TRIPS came to be and what its original purpose was? Absolutely. Uh, this is a very timely conversation, Lisa, because as your listeners may know, there was a uh, waiver of commitments under the TRIPS agreement agreed uh, to by members of the World Trade Organization back in June that covered vaccines for the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the same organization, the World Trade Organization, is debating the extension of that waiver to COVID therapeutics and diagnostics. So this is all about the agreement uh, on intellectual property rights at the World Trade Organization um, that was first entered into force in January 1, 1995. And it's one of three pillar agreements of the WTO that also includes uh, trading goods and trade and services. Uh, and the TRIPS agreement was meant to be a floor, not a ceiling. That is, uh, it is explicitly uh, under the terms of the agreement, a set of minimum standards that countries should implement in their national laws and regulations to provide a a certain set of intellectual property rights to other uh, trading partners. Uh, And and so this was intended to build the foundation for a global rules-based intellectual property system, uh, much along the lines of of what we have in, in the United States and other advanced countries. And I think one of the 
challenges from the outset was that the intellectual property commitments that were agreed to by WTO members were viewed for the most part as a concession. So you think about, you know, uh, middle income and less developed countries, they wanted access to wealthy markets like the U.S. market. They wanted uh, reductions in agricultural subsidies, um, but they really didn't want intellectual property rules because, by and large, they viewed intellectual property as something that forced them to pay someone else. Um, they were in the position, and, and many continue to be in the position of being what they would describe as net importers of intellectual property. Um, and so, you know, they, they saw this as a, as a disadvantage uh, and, a, and a concession, not as a benefit of the rules-based multilateral trading system. Yeah, and there have been some interesting um, aspects to TRIPS over time as it relates to pharmaceuticals, in particular, some countries implementing more stringent requirements and rules for pharmaceuticals versus other countries. So it's been interesting just to watch kind of the evolution of TRIPS over time. And that brings me to the IP waiver um, that I want to talk to you about, because earlier this year, the World Trade Organization suspended certain TRIPS waiver obligations and therefore IP protections for the COVID-19 vaccine in developing WTO member nations. What led to this decision, and do you think it was even necessary at the time? The decision to waive certain commitments under the TRIPS agreement was, I believe, the, the outgrowth of this uh, continued misunderstanding, sometimes willful, of how intellectual property rights actually contribute to economic activity. You know, going back to my comment a moment ago, uh, many countries do continue, even, even advanced uh, developed economies, continue to view themselves as net importers of intellectual property, which puts you in a very awkward position with respect to uh, commitments to protect intellectual property of your trading partners. The way that we talk about IP at the chamber is in terms of its enabling functions. So first of all, we believe that the high degree of legal certainty associated with intellectual property rights in the United States enables businesses to look out over a long time horizon and invest in uh, high risk, capital intensive, innovative and creative activity that they otherwise would not be able to invest in for the simple reason that we operate within uh, competitive financial markets where Resources need to be allocated to, to different projects, and those high-risk innovative projects simply won't be financed unless there's uh, a clear opportunity for a return on investment when successful. And we know that, you know, and you mentioned the pharmaceutical industry a moment ago, we know that many innovative investments are not successful. In fact, nine out of 10 uh, drugs that are in clinical trials fail to ever make it to uh, market as a medicine that could either help a patient or uh, provide a return on investment to the innovator. So it's just tremendously important that IP rights are available to fill, fill this function if we want to have those advanced technologies available, such as the COVID-19 vaccines, uh, you know, in, in a pandemic situation, or to, to extrapolate to other industries if we want the technologies that are going to uh, adequately address things like energy shortages and climate change and uh, food production. Um, 
But the other, and, and to me, almost equally important function that I see of, of intellectual property rights in the economy is that it sort of serves as that connective tissue uh, between different stakeholders within the innovation ecosystem. So when you're looking at the broad range of uh, players who need to contribute to the life cycle of innovation from very early, um, you know, early stage scientific research through to development of products and testing and regulatory approval and commercialization and everything else that that goes into that innovation life cycle, you need to connect, you know, myriad uh, participants. Intellectual property provides a means for those stakeholders to come to the table together to understand who's bringing what to uh, agree on a value, even if we can't always accurately uh, assess the value of a given, you know, intellectual property asset. But they have to come to terms, and and IP rights enable that in a very clear, um, legally enforceable way, and so it enables that, that contractual relationship among stakeholders. And I think, and I, this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, so forgive me, but if we can help more uh, economies around the world see the opportunity from intellectual property instead of seeing it as a cost that they pay back to uh, innovators in wealthier countries, then we will turn around this IP waiver debate and create the conditions where Countries are looking at the TRIPS agreement, for instance, as an investment in a domestic legal and economic infrastructure that allows them to succeed in a 21st century knowledge economy, whereas today they take the view that intellectual property rights are, are a cost being imposed on them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. And I think it's interesting because there was recently a WTO communication in which uh, the governments of Mexico and Switzerland actually reported that no developing WTO nation availed themselves of the waiver since it came down in June. That's exactly right. Uh, and and there's good reasons for that, right? We We really don't believe that the waiver was uh, necessary to to either uh, accelerate discovery and development of solutions like vaccines and therapeutics, or that it was helpful in any way or needed in terms of uh, accelerating the, the distribution uh, and equitable access to those solutions around the world. In fact, for all the reasons you know we, we've discussed over the last few minutes, intellectual property rights are, uh, you know, sort of an essential role in getting those ideas out there and even in um, technology transfer. And I, I think, you know, it, in, in terms of trade policy in the United States, we tend to think of technology transfer uh, in terms of coerced or forced technology transfer, where maybe, uh, you know, government entities uh, are trying to, quote unquote, steal our technology. But I think, you know, you you, you know this far better than I do, Lisa, in terms of how our own innovation ecosystem works, technology transfer is constant and organic and healthy. And it really runs a spectrum from it's it's not always the, the transfer of fully developed technologies. In fact, it's more knowledge transfer and knowledge advancement than becoming over time technology advancement and technology transfer in ways that you know, we, we don't even see half the time. So 
you know, this idea that's out there uh, in the world that, you know, uh, the capabilities of a Moderna could be transferred in whole cloth to other countries just seems ludicrous when you see how complex and uh, dynamic our own innovation ecosystem is and how technology transfer really works so well when you foster that ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, with the COVID-19 vaccines, you know, it, it wasn't really transferring the, the technology. It was actually how do you make these vaccines and transfer that information to be able to, to make those vaccines. So there was a lot of know-how wrapped up in that, which like to your point, a lot of people don't see. Well, right. And, you know, when you take a Moderna, for instance, we know how long it took for that company to get where it is. When you look at a BioNTech, you, you look at the path that they followed. And, you know, important to reflect that in late 2019, you know, before we recognized that we were, uh, you know, at the onset of a, of a pandemic, those companies were both struggling to find capital to continue their research investment. And they, they, they may not have existed were it not for the pandemic. But it's because of the, the strength of our system that companies like that are able to continue to attract capital and, and you know, continue to test new ideas. And, uh, you know, and the idea that you could just take that and, you know, sort of clone it uh, across different countries is almost laughable when you really see how the process works. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we had this IP waiver um, relating to the, the vaccines back in June. And, and now the WTO is coming up on another deadline here on December 17th, where they're going to decide whether or not they should actually broaden this waiver um, for not only for vaccines, but to include medications and diagnostics. And it seems to me if it really wasn't necessary to do it for the vaccines. It seems to me it doesn't appear to be necessary to do this for medications and diagnostics. What's your thought, Patrick? Well, that just really, uh, I, I think, uh, makes the case for for how political this conversation has been at the WTO. You know, in, in the lead up to uh, the 12th ministerial conference of the WTO that took place in June of 2022, where the, the vaccine waiver was agreed, we saw that the organization itself, the institution, was under duress and uh, that they were going to face a situation where they might not have any outcome at all. Um, we've seen that the uh, dispute settlement um, platform within, within the organization has now been uh, effectively ceased to function for the last several years. Um, so this was a moment of crisis for the WTO. Uh, and it seems apparent that many member states, you know, including some of the uh, the strongest supporters of intellectual property, um, were more focused on preventing a um, you know a breakdown of the institution than they were on protecting uh, trips. And so, some efforts were made to compartmentalize and cabin the effects of the the trips waiver. And in fact, you know, what ultimately happened could truthfully I'd be termed more of a clarification of existing flexibilities than it was, uh, as originally proposed, a, a full-blown waiver of intellectual property commitments. Um, so, but nevertheless, you know, now in this, uh, in, in this uh, renewed version of the debate affecting therapeutics and diagnostics, we're faced with the same situation where the facts on the ground don't in any way support 
uh, a new waiver or a new, or new clarification of flexibilities. But there are still those political pressures, not as um, not as urgent, perhaps, on an institutional basis with the WTO, but just in terms of the of the global context of um, equitable access to uh, to technology. Um, many of the same pressures are still there. So, Patrick, let's assume that the WTO goes ahead and decides it's going to apply this waiver also to medications and diagnostics. What effect do you think that's going to have on innovation and research? We're very concerned that uh, any expansion of the waiver to therapeutics and diagnostics is likely to have a much bigger impact on uh, the ability of industry to invest. And uh, the reasons for that become fairly obvious when you look at the uh, products that are likely to be targeted, because in the vaccine space, it was very clear that the target was mRNA, uh, and, and it was a very focused uh, desire to, to 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 take that technology. Um, in the therapeutic and diagnostic space, there are many, many technologies that are useful in terms of the uh, ever-evolving standard of care that you know physicians use to treat COVID nineteen. These um, therapies um, are not all new. Some of them are. Uh, many of them are repurposing of uh, you know existing medicines, and and so the the implications are so far ranging uh, in, in terms of rights that currently exist that um, it, it really just does ha- have a, a much wider uh, potential impact. And then in a more forward-looking manner, uh, my concern is that having approved a vaccine waiver in June and then following that up with a uh, with an extended waiver for therapeutics and diagnostics, that multilateral organizations like the WTO and the World Health Organization are then looking at a pandemic uh, response treaty or pandemic response instrument whereby they would identify intellectual property as a barrier to equitable access and lay the groundwork for uh, routine waivers in the future. Um, and the same debate is going on in organizations like the um, UN Forum on Climate Change. You see these proposals uh, with um, the COP27 uh, talks. And uh, and so it's very easy to see this um, waiver idea snowballing and becoming uh, really an epidemic in its own right. Yeah, and talk about weakening intellectual property all around the world then, because then where do you draw the line if you're going from, you know, um, a health emergency to climate change? You know, you could probably make an argument for just about any technology at that point. Exactly. You know, and so at that point, international commitments really have no no meaning. Exactly. So you mentioned the politics of this with respect to the waiver. Is is that the really the push and the driver here to extend this waiver, or is there more to it than that? It really, to me, um, the the politics within the WTO are what enabled the original waiver to to move forward and and may contribute to the extension of the waiver to therapeutics and diagnostics if, if the WTO go, ultimately goes down that path. But the real driver to me is this utter misapprehension that has been uh, driven by uh, global activists, uh, well-meaning, I'm sure, this idea that intellectual property is a payout to so-called big business uh, in wealthy countries. And uh, it does seem to me that we almost have to go back to 
1994, when the uh, original TRIPS agreement was being uh, approved and, and ready for entry into force and re-examine the, the basic uh, conversation with the rest of the world about why we have intellectual property rights. You know, if, if intellectual property was all about paying rich people, uh, the United States would not have implemented its own system 200 years ago. There was a, a clear recognition that the system of rights uh, enabled innovation from the masses, not from the aristocrats. The, the very um, premise was that they wanted to democratize invention and that, that to do so, you had to create a system where regular people, tradesmen, uh, craftsmen could have the rights to their intellectual output. Otherwise, it's it's simply um, the independently wealthy who could, who could afford to pursue scientific projects because they had the, the wherewithal to, to do things that might never pay out for them, that they might never see a return on investment from. The average Joe can't do that. The average Jane can't do that. They have to you know, feed their family, have a livelihood, and so they can't invest in uh, in their own intellectual output unless there's a, a means to own that output. So, Patrick, we know with the vaccine waiver, the Biden administration supported the waiver. Where do they currently stand on this waiver for therapeutics and diagnostics? You know, I think it's important to take a step back in, in time when we, you know, discuss the administration's support for the, the vaccine waiver. In, um, you know, in January 2021, we were obviously at a um, a critical time for the world in terms of the pandemic response. We were at the very initial stages of approving and uh, distributing vaccines that were developed in record time. There was no uh, clear path to, to being able to manufacture this at a global scale. And you had a new administration that was coming in following one that had been very um, domestically focused. Uh, and, and this new administration wanted to show to the world that it was taking a leadership role. Meantime, they're faced with the, the domestic reality of vaccinating 300 million Americans and, uh, you know, and being able to work with industry to manufacture those at scale, get them into the, the arms of, of American citizens, which is, let's, let's face it, the U.S. administration's first responsibility. Um, and, and so with that in mind, it's easy to see why a uh, you know why a trips waiver, why an IP waiver would seem like uh, you know an attractive alternative to taking responsibility for vaccinating the world, which they really did not have the the wherewithal to do. So in May 2021, you saw the the new U.S. administration announce its support for a waiver of IP at the WTO for vaccines, and they were very um, clear throughout that entire debate that that the support was for vaccines. And the U.S. has not taken a position on the extension of a waiver to therapeutics and diagnostics. And in fact, you know, since since June, we've seen many um, members of Congress uh, on a bipartisan basis speak out uh, publicly with letters to the administration, urging them to be very cautious uh, in the approach to this uh extended waiver debate and to, to consider all of the implications for U.S. technological leadership, for 
our, the you know the workers and and their jobs in our economy and uh and, and all of the downstream implications since it does not appear that a waiver is any in any way justified by the facts on the ground at this point. So I can assume we're not going to hear anything on this between now and December 17th, it sounds like. You know, at, at first we were believing that the administration was unlikely to uh, take a position before the elections. Um, at this point, I would tend to agree, although I'll, I'll say that's purely speculation on my part, that we're not likely to see a, a firm position from the U.S. anytime soon. And that you know, one likely outcome is that the um, the December 17 deadline that the WTO imposed on itself will likely be extended. So, Patrick, what can the autumn community do to stop the expansion of the TRIPS waiver and protect intellectual property rights? You know, what I love about the autumn community is how well you represent the ecosystem. And I think that story just hasn't been told. I feel like those of us in, ind- in industry, we say ecosystem to each other all the time, but even we don't, don't really very often do the hard work of defining what that ecosystem is, what it looks like, who's part of it. We don't, um, you know, connect it to the life cycle of innovation. We don't, um, we don't tell the story as well as we need to. And I, I think there's no one um, better positioned to tell that story than than Autumn, you know, in, in cooperation with partners in, in industry and government and, uh, you know, frankly, the financial community, venture capitalists, um, equity markets. We're all part of this. Um, and, we, and we need to uh, we need to speak up. We need to help policymakers, um, you know, make it accessible to them. Uh, how this ecosystem really works so that they can understand better the value of IP. Because right now, with the uh, the, the populist trends in, uh, in society, uh, but, but you know, you see that reflected in, in both parties in Congress, um, we really face a very hostile environment for intellectual property. And, and it's essential for uh, for the world, but, but also for this innovation ecosystem that we turn that around. Oh, absolutely. And and Patrick, thank you for your time today, because this has been a really important and insightful conversation. And I can't thank you enough for bringing your expertise uh, to the show today and for continuing to be a source of knowledge on this important topic for the tech transfer community. So thank you. Well, thank you to you and, and Autumn for your great work. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks so much, Patrick. Well, that's a wrap for this week's show. Catch you next time on the air. I'm your host, Lisa Mueller, signing off for now. Thanks for listening to Autumn on the Air with Lisa Mueller. Get social with us and share your thoughts. You can tweet us at AUTM or visit us online at AUTM.net. We'll be back next week on the air. Be sure to join us. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. 
Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.